This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported in part by Harry's.com, The Great Courses Plus, and Squarespace. And, and I'm not going to say it. You know, we need something new. Yeah, maybe you're right. Time to move on. <laughs> All right. Yes. Well, what's going on with the Kevin Paul? I mean, the Count of St. Germain? Well, you know, it's funny you should ask. We took all the suggestions we had for his next iteration, and our crack team selected our 10 favorites, which I sent over to him. And? He's got them, but we couldn't get a time sorted out to get on the phone, so we're waiting for a gap in his schedule to get him back on and announce the winner of the new Count of St. Germain contest. Ah, good deal. Well, I suppose he does have all the time in the world, what with being immortal and all. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. They had the people to do it, and would have forced us to surrender if we didn't have bombs also. We had no choice, or we thought we had no choice. Leo Zillard, the man who patented the nuclear reactor, referring to Nazi Germany during World War II. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the Nazi bell as we look at what it might have been and where it might actually be today. Okay, so it's time to talk about what exactly the bell was. Some people have... (laughs) We had a few notes, so people were like, you know, I listened to that whole first one. I still wasn't sure what it was. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. No one is sure what it was. It's hard, That's it's a hard good point. for us to say yeah. what it was because it is not around. There are no pictures of it. There's only this paper trail that was first discovered by Igor Witkowski when he was allowed to take a look at what the Polish intelligence officer brought him these documents that were from an interrogation of an SS officer who made indications about this item being moved out of the area as the war drew to a close. Yes. So to recap how the information came to light, Igor was contacted by a Polish intelligence agent who wanted to see if he knew anything about this because they had classified interrogation documents, as Scott just said, of real SS generals, Jakob Sporenberg, bad dude, Yes, as they all were. But he is a real guy that is prominent in the war. You can look him up. What Sporenberg apparently had were documents or related stories about these documents as well that were evacuation protocol orders. These are official documents that explain basically what the orders are, the procedures, the protocols of removing this sophisticated piece of research material, this machine. This machine, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. We want to enlighten you as much as we can with some more specifics about it, so you can at least start to take a look at it in your mind's eye. Right, and if you're putting together Ikea furniture or jogging or doing something noisy, you might want to come back to this later or just ignore it and forget about knowing what it is because it's a little complicated in some of the science and technology areas, but basically it's just a big machine that is shaped like a bell. That is also why it's thought possibly to have been the Kecksburg craft, which we also got complaints about people not understanding what that was. Yeah. Just go look up the GE Mark II re-entry vehicle. That'll give you an idea of what the shape is. That's at least one major theory that uh, John Ventry, our guest, had concluded wasn't this Nazi bell. But a lot of other people do believe, though, that the Nazi bell, at least the technology, was involved with the Kecksburg crash. And that's maybe what got that thing to crash in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Yes. So that's what the confusion is there. Now, the bell, as far as we know, is not a flying device. You can't stand up in it. 
You wouldn't no want to get in it. You wouldn't want, yes. Just if, turning if, it on <laughs> kills people. <laughs> right. You don't want to be anywhere near it, which is why some have said that the test area was lined with ceramic bricks. Now that also ties in with the other theory proposed by some people like Dr. Joseph Farrell that the delivery of bricks that John Ventry mentioned at Wright-Patterson Air Force, and that's where the guy who was delivering the ceramic bricks said, like, yes. well, I saw a hand pop out and had three green fingers on it, and whatever, he thought it was an alien table, body. Yeah. That's kind of the weird tie-in. Now, of course, according to Farrell, the test area in Germany there in the mine also had ceramic bricks as a protection. So that's why the Americans, when they got the technology and possibly this device, also wanted to have a fortress of ceramic bricks for protection for their scientists. Because again, a lot of German uh, scientists had died. At least five of the seven original scientists had There's had two things away. for me that spring to mind <laughs> yeah. when you're turning this thing on. One is, first of all, how they all react in the elevator in the first Ghostbusters when they turn on the nuclear accelerator for the first <laughs> like time. Egon. They just kind of like back away from yeah. it. And the other thing is that feeling you get when you go in for an x-ray for right. medical reasons. Right. And they put that thing on you and then they go and stand in another room behind a wall. You're like, well, how, how, why do you have to go over there? <laughs> yes. What's it doing to me? Well, because you're getting one <laughs> for the day. They're yeah. seeing 12 other patients that day. Yeah, so, well, just remember, if you look yeah. down and you're wearing a red shirt from Star Trek, you're in deep, deep. <laughs> you're going to get clobbered or left behind or turned into a crystal block. So <laughs> so anyway, that's the wrap-up. We're talking about a device that is of a research purpose, possibly some people believe for anti-gravity purposes, some think for nuclear enrichment, or just as kind of an engine. Yes. Yeah. So. And, and just visually, just so you guys can start to sort of think about what it might have looked like. Yeah, what are the dimensions? It, well, it's thought to be about nine feet in diameter at its base and about 12 to 14 feet high. And it has a domed top. It really does look a lot like a bell with sort of a skirt on it and that comes out at the base, very similar to the shape of the Kecksburg craft. Yes, exactly. And hence the other name for this topic and this device, die Glocke. Yes. Uh, again, pardon my German, my French, and every other language I try and attempt here, but <laughs> that means the bell. Yes. From the start, that was the unofficial classification. I don't know if we ever received any inkling here of what it was actually officially called. We yeah, haven't, that, and there, there's of. some people that speculate that it was called the bell or that it was a mix-up between that and a saucer that the SS was developing uh -huh. that was also shaped much more like a bell, actually. Right. The only other thing I want to say about how it looked visually, there have been depictions of it online, but there's no photos of it anywhere that anyone knows of that have been released. Nor schematics, because again, if those were captured, those would be top secret yeah. by the Germans and whoever was capturing them, the U.S. or the Russians yeah. at this point. They're not popping up in a Google search anyway. No, so, so, but what you will find is that that a ton of people have done CGI renderings. Yes. And there's people who claim, oh, it had crazy symbols around the base of it, just like the Kecksburg craft. Yeah. But we have not read anything that said that. But I also haven't read Vidkowski's book yet, which we've ordered. The English translation of his book got a lot of descriptive information in it, but it hasn't come yet because it's coming from overseas. But I haven't seen anything that suggested that it actually had weird symbols around its base. If you're normal terrestrial human beings like us, it's for identification purposes. But I always like to go back. My often cited little tidbit of info from the CARET report, the C-A-R-E-T, Center for Advanced Extraterrestrial Research or something like that, where the markings, the Star Trek looking typeface, if you want to call it, 
is actually the code to get the device to work. Yes. So again, I love that idea. It's a great sci-fi idea, or maybe it's real, who knows. What Force is referring to, by the way, is a famous sighting that is, I think, since thought to be a hoax. Everything's still kind of up in the air. Everything's since thought to be a hoax, yeah. including this, because- It's one again, of those ones that's too clear. The pictures are too perfect, <laughs> well, right? Again, it's, it's either not clear enough or it's too clear. Yeah. If it's in the middle, it's not either, so it can't be believed. In this case, yes, it was a fictional scientific report about captured alien technology which ties in with tonight's show because where this story starts are actual German military documents that were obtained. Yeah. They have a major incentive to be truthful because these guys are going to go up on charges at Nuremberg for crimes against humanity. So think about this. I mean, yeah, maybe they're throwing out bits of, uh, well, I know something, you know, you might not want to kill me yet. That's an angle. Or it's like, I better bargain here right away. That's also the other theory with maybe some people like Hans Kammler, who is reported to have died, but that's a little murky. But certainly with Jakob Sporenberg, he's probably going to be executed. Yeah. So these people are trying to make deals and bargains with the U.S. and with the Russians after Operation Paperclip, which rounded them all up, to be useful continuously and deliver some kind of goods that would keep them alive, again, like most of the NASA scientists. Which <laughs> yeah. also means that it could be prone to exaggeration. That's another thing to consider. Absolutely. It's like, I'm very important because this thing <laughs> actually works, which yes. maybe it didn't. It may have just been a failed experiment. But no, it but is if you can consider. But if you can have information enough to lead them to something that is valuable, well, it's a purpose for keeping you alive, which will skirt the war crime trials at Nuremberg. So yes. again, there's a lot of different angles on this, but we're going to operate tonight from the angle that there is some kernel of truth to this. So getting back to the symbols on the bottom, yes, again, that might have something to, to do with the operation of the craft or the device itself. Yes. Speaking of ceramics, it was coated with ceramic on the outside as well. Yeah, there's something to that. There were tiles on it, I guess, which this reminded me of the space shuttle. They're about three inches thick, purportedly. Right. The space shuttle tiles are about one to five inches thick, which I think provide a barrier for plasma on re-entry and heat in general. But. Exactly, because it just made me think of our friend Travis's uh, barbecue, the egg, the $500 barbecue egg. Oh, yeah. Probably 200 pounds worth of ceramic. Ceramic aids with heat. That's the other idea is that this thing, when kicked up, gives off a tremendous amount of heat, which may explain the nearby flytrap cooling tower. Right. The hinge. Right. Yeah. I also wanted to mention that operationally, this device, the Nazi bell, was thought to operate at an extreme extremely high voltage, millions of volts Yeah, and Farrell believes it's uh, impulse direct current. Right. Which is, you know, slightly different, of course, than alternating current AC. But it required a tremendous amount of power, which explains why it was uh, being tested near the power plant. Yes. With lines going directly to it. Right. And also it's a good cover if you're <laughs> Exactly. You're yeah, what are you doing like there by the, by the cooling tower? When it was on, it emitted a purple glow... And it also, according to Witkowski and others, generated a radiation that actually killed plants and ultimately some of the scientists who had been working on it, which is something we were sort of joking about there a few minutes ago. But <laughs> you definitely want to be behind the wall no, looking through the window. No, exactly. And here's the other thing. It can only be turned on very briefly. We don't know why this. Could it be because of the giant amount of power it consumed or could it be the cooling requirements? But for whatever reason... It apparently, in its current state, at the time yeah. that people were interrogated about it, could only be operational for short periods of time. My thinking is that it's not something you turn on and forget about, leave the room, go make yourself some uh, microwave popcorn, because I think the field it generated may just keep expanding out to a certain limit, but that might be an effect, or whatever it was doing, it was increasing 
and increasing to such a degree that, again, you need a limited amount of time to have this thing operating. Exactly. The other big part of the story is that the scientists themselves were not aware of everything that this was capable of, that they were surprised by the things they found out it could do and the things they had yet to find out it could do. So they were a little cautious about it. Right. The last thing that we'll point out here about it descriptively is where it was located. We mentioned that it was in the Wenceslas mine, which Witkowski pointed out has all of these ravines where troops were emplaced in, I believe, concentric circles radiating out from where the bell was probably being tested Right. that had possibly a couple of thousand soldiers who were armed to the teeth so that you couldn't get anywhere near there. And the interesting thing about this is we are nowhere near the war front. And it was also connected to, as we'd mentioned previously, Darisa, which is the giant. So this is a, a massive underground fortified bunker complex for storage and research purposes to keep you out of the range of bombers, which you kind of were anyway at the time. It's very controllable. It's underground. It's secret. It's next to some concentration camps, so you have a lot of free forced labor. Right. So there was a lot of strategic elements for this region. Uh, Here's a fun fact in what kind of minerals and mining was going on at the time. In Yokomstal, which is now Yokomov in the Czech Republic, That had a 500-year-old silver mine there, which is where they first discovered uranium. So that was slagged off because the miners couldn't use it. They called it Pischblende, so that wasn't useful to them. Usually what that meant when they found it was that, well, this is not silver, and the silver vein, the silver seam has run out, so it was kind of bad luck. So they just made a huge heap of it, not knowing how tremendously valuable it would become. I looked up on Google Maps. I hope I've got the towns right, but it's only a four and a half hour drive, four hours, 50 minutes or so from Jokomstal to the Wenceslas mine near Ludvikovice. That's the small town closest to this mine area. Yes, and the other reason they put these bases or these experiments or whatever they were doing in mines was because mines were perfect pre-existing underground secret spaces that they could operate in without having to be worried about aerial photography or anything like that. That's a whole other Astonishing Legends topic that a lot of other people have covered, but there's been a lot of books written about it is secret underground bases because... That's the easiest thing to do. You go underground. Right. And Uh, if you had the mine, you're saving yourself all that labor already. Exactly. Because that's the other problem is if you're doing something top secret and you, you need to get it out of sight of prying eyes and satellites, you go underground. But then what do you do with all the dirt? So now there's some crazy theories about these highly advanced tunneling machines that are thermonucleogenic and <laughs> taking the dirt and heating it to such a degree that it makes glass-lined walls in tunnels. So really crazy far-out stuff, but not certainly unheard of throughout human military secret history. And finally, you know, we talked about the flytrap or the hinge, and the hinge is the ring that you see that looks almost like a spider, a concrete spider on the ground which if you look up the flytrap or you look up the bell, it's really the only picture that comes up. Same picture we posted to our website when we posted this episode. And some people say, oh, that's just the base of a cooling tower. But apparently there are really powerful electrical cables running to it, which a cooling tower would not need. Right. That doesn't explain that. And the other thing is that it's nearly identical in construction to a flytraps, which is what they call these vertical test facilities for craft that would launch vertically. Yeah. In addition to that, It also occurred to me today while we were preparing for this episode that if you had a cooling tower that was hollow on the inside 
and you had a base like that, it would also be a good way to test a device that's taking off and landing vertically without anyone seeing it. Oh, you mean as a disguise? Yeah. Like this is an industrial contraption, but yeah. really inside we're doing something else. That's right. a very good idea. Yeah. The, and the reason they call it the flytrap, of course, is that it looked like a late 19th century, turn of the century there, flytrap device, which was cone-shaped that had panels. Flies would get in, they get trapped. It's kind of like a yellow jacket trap now. Yeah. It's like a lobster trap too, isn't it? They have, they it has like a right. little tiny hole. They go in, they, they go in and they can't, to get out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they can't find their way out. So that's why they call it the flytrap, which is a device you can see in old Sears and Robux catalogs being advertised for sale. Just so you know, there's two ideas about this remaining structure, which is really the only remaining structure. That's another thing that we should probably clear up is that you can't go into the mine section because it was blown up and sealed off by the Nazis. And it would just be too cost prohibitive to dig your way in there just to see what's going on. It might be the burial section for maybe tens of thousands of Jewish prisoners. Vitkowski mentioned that yeah. the one gentleman who was also himself a prisoner who was in charge of the accounting for people that were missing had, uh, I think- 20,000. Go missing in one week or one day, I can't remember. Within but, a day. Yeah, within a so day. So that tells you that's how they dealt with them when they wrapped this thing up. You wouldn't put it past the Nazis or the SS to have dealt with some of the scientists that way as well. If they had gotten to the point technologically that they had wanted to get with those people. So they might have also well, sealed them in there yeah, with, just, along with the labor. Yeah, exactly. If you have the research and that's mobile, it's better not to have some people still hanging around that could give your potential enemies the same information. To the Nazis, though, the Soviets were the hated ideological enemy. They hated communism, even though they're kind of cousins ideologically. Not that they love the Americans anymore. But they hated them less than the Russians. Right. So during Operation Paperclip, it's like some information I believe was routed one way or the other. Man, the Germans really know their engineering and machining. Yeah, whether it's a device that can create an Einstein Rosen bridge or a shaving razor, they sure have a way with steel. Which is probably why Jeff and Andy from Harry's bought a German razor factory with 100 years of blade making experience so they could make their own high quality razors, sell them online, and ship directly to you for half the price of the leading brand. I noticed, by the way, that you're looking cleaned up after getting rid of that Sasquatch beard. <laughs> yeah. Was that Harry's doing? Of course. Well, a very smooth, close, and comfortable shave with a super sharp Harry's blade combined with a tear in the space-time continuum. But I did not have to travel into the future to get cutting-edge shaving technology because Harry's has all that. We're talking about a Harry's razor cartridge that has five German-engineered blades, a lubricating strip, a flex hinge for a comfortable glide, trimmer blade for hard-to-reach places, and all on top of a stylish, weighted, ergonomic handle. And all that for a $2 blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at the drugstore or supermarket. And I didn't have to drive there and forget to buy them because Harry's comes right to my door. Harry's really is a razor company that's fixing shaving. And now you can see for yourself and save some money because Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their most popular trial set for free. The trial set comes with a razor handle of your choice, five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel, and it's free when you sign up. You just pay a small fee for shipping. So, to redeem your free trial offer, go to harrys.com slash A-L-P right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash A-L-P. By the way, I hear there's a German bell factory up for sale. 
Hi, I'm Heather Williams, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Okay, so now what we're going to do is talk about the ideas of what the bell might actually have done. We already know that Witkowski's money is on an anti-gravity propulsion device of some kind. I do want to come to that. But the way we do our show, if you've been with us a while, you already know this, is we try to start out with the simplest ideas first or the simplest explanations first. It's Occam's razor, which says, among competing hypotheses, the one with the fewest assumptions should be selected. What about if it's all assumptions? <laughs> <laughs> this is all hypo- crazy hypotheses. Yeah, the whole thing is an assumption, really, because yeah. we don't know where this thing is. And no, and that is the biggest criticism against this story. We don't have any proof of any of this. There's no machinery. There's no Nazi bells sitting in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Yeah. So we have to conclude this thing didn't exist. Well, that is a route to take, and it makes the most sense. Well, I don't see any plans on the internet for this thing. I don't see any, you know, rebel model, uh, plastic model that you can build like there is of the uh, F-117 or the B-2 stealth bomber. So where is this thing? Show us the proof. Well... Again, we're talking about a top secret project, so there's not going to be any of that. If there is, you'll never see it. You'll never see it. Somebody's seen it. And at least Igor swears that he saw documents, official German military documents, that showed that some kind of device existed that was baffling to not only the people reviewing these reports— but to the people experimenting with it. And by the way, just quickly, I know that uh, some people had some difficulty understanding Igor's accent or might have. Uh, you know, for me, it clicked after a few minutes, but that doesn't always work even for me. I'm not saying no, oh, I'm know. superior to you. I'm yeah. not saying that. I'm just saying. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. So I wanted to let everybody know that we have a group of really amazing transcriptionists who have been releasing transcriptions for our patrons from the $1 level and all the way up. And we've been transcribing the episodes in stages because it costs money to get them transcribed. But Tess has a bunch in the wings now that she's releasing on Patreon. But I'm going to go ahead and select this show to be the next one to be transcribed, even though it's not chronological order. We have however many 60 shows in in front of it. But we'll do this one so that people who wanted to better understand what Igor was saying will be able to read the actual interview, you just have to come over to Patreon and become a patron. Right. But it, it costs us a dollar a word to just to transcribe. <laughs> it's, I not, know it's, it's not that bad. No, but it's it's a very handy tool. And a lot of uh, podcasts you'll see, especially where it's uh, dense material, you'll see that as offered as a bonus thing. So, because sometimes it's actually just easier to read it. Yes. Because you're not doing something else which I often do when I, if I listen to podcasts, like I'm jogging or something, you know, years ago when I used to jog. And then you realize though that you're missing a lot of it. So I totally get it when you get to the end of it. It's like, what the heck were they talking about? I still have no idea. What was this thing? This transcript will help plot out what Igor was saying, because he is the source really, the seminal source for all this information. Yes. From which everybody's written their books and done their research. He let the popular world know about it. Exactly. All right. So just wanted to let you know that. And uh, Sarah, I'll be in touch with you about getting that transcript going. (laughs) If I haven't emailed you already, you can go for it and uh, send us the bill. Okay. So getting back, we were talking about how we were going to try to take a look at the more mundane explanations early on. And then as we progress through our theories, we get to the more 
what you might call crazier ones. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> crazier just because they rely on more assumptions. Right. That's fun. We like to do that. You know how this works. When you get into the crazy stuff, that's when you get to talk about things like UFO disco wizards and, and <laughs> that sort of thing. Again, that's the fun thing. We're not a debunking show, which to us is a valuable thing to add to the discourse, but a lot less fun. Yeah, a yeah. lot less fun yeah. for us and our listeners, we're, we're betting. So let's say that the Nazi bell had something to do with the bomb, as they would say. The A-bomb? The atom bomb? The atom bomb. Okay. Or a nuclear weapon, developing a way to create a nuclear weapon. Yes, using molecular technology and newly discovered science, because that's all in the ballpark here, since the turn of the century. Yes. So then we're only really talking about 40 years since uh, people like Marie and Pierre Curie were experimenting with radium and people like Ernest Rutherford and Frederick Soddy, who were discovering that uranium actually gives off energy, radiation, and the proof of Einstein's E equals MC squared theory. So this is the whole birth of this kind of science coming into play, which heretofore had not been discovered or known about. That's right. And you have to think about what would have been Nazi Germany's goal? What would be anyone's goal, any country's goal in war? It's to win the war as decisively and as quickly as possible. So yeah, Same thing about martial arts. You don't sit there and have a, a sparring match for 20 minutes. You're, you're there to put the guy down. Exactly. So the question is, how do you do that? Well, you do it through superior firepower and weaponry or strategy. You could also use that. But they were probably looking for delivery systems. And when it comes to the bell as a possible delivery system, based on the explanations that we've read, there's some that would suggest that maybe it's just a physical delivery system. And there's other ones that might suggest that it actually does what is tantamount to magic, where you <laughs> right. open a hole in space and time, and you throw a bomb through it and close it back up. <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> it yeah, gets there exactly. the day before. Sure. And it gets there the day before. Yeah. So the weaponry itself... More specifically, a nuclear weapon, the, the bomb is probably the first thing that we need to think about this. And what a bomb requires is uranium. Yes. The rock that became a bomb. And I'm so bummed I couldn't find this again, but somewhere in our research. Yeah. I had read something about uranium and its origins as being left over from an exploding star. Well, a supernova. Yeah. A supernova. And I love the idea of that because what it's saying is that because that is what it is, as an element, it harbors the most energy of anything you can find on yeah. the planet. Or so are we. All the minerals you find in your own body and in uranium, which crackles with the power and the energy of this unimaginable explosion, this cosmic event, all these elements come from that. That's what formed the Earth. Uranium was a product of that supernova explosion. It gets embedded into the dirt of the Earth as the Earth cools. Now it's gelled in there. But yeah, that's, you know, Moby. We're all made of stars. Yes. That's what he's talking about. Yes. Well, uranium is obviously very hard to find. It's very rare on the Earth. And the uranium that you need, at least at the time, would have been uranium-235. Or also, in the early days, they were exploring working with uranium-233. Now, you mentioned earlier Czechoslovakia. And there was a relationship to Germany and Czechoslovakia and their uranium mine there. Can you go back over that real quick? Yeah. In Jokomstal, which is where the 500-year-old silver mine is, that's where they discover uranium as a rock. But it wasn't known as that then. What the town was doing, what they were famous for, was making Jokomstalers, which is a big silver coin, which is where we get the term dollar from. Oh, well, there you go. That. Yeah. Learn something new every day. When they came across this Pischblende, they threw it away because they didn't know what it was. But to give you an idea of 
just how valuable it became. In 1908, gold is 66 cents per gram, while a gram of radium, a derivative of this iron uranium ore, is worth $88,000. Right. So like anything else, like helium-3 or one of these rare elements, it becomes very expensive because it is so rare. And reportedly, this is the only place in all of Europe that it is found. At the time. Yes, at the time. So this mine was very important to whom? The Nazis, who on March 14th, 1939 break their pledge that uh, Hitler made in Munich not to uh, do any more bad stuff, and he takes over all the rest of Czechoslovakia. So now they own the mine. They occupy this territory, so they have within their grasp uranium. Right. So, which makes a lot of people worried. So one of the things, though, that they might have also been trying to do with the bell, coming back to the bell, is trying to find ways to enrich or breed uranium through particle acceleration or cyclotron type of action, and we're going to talk about that in a second. The other way that you win the war with the bomb is something that we talked about a few minutes ago, is make the bomb tiny. If you can make it really small, that vastly improves your ability to conceal and deliver it. It reduces all the requirements associated with deploying the weapon. That's another huge part of the story in that the Germans, even if they had the bomb, you still got to get it to another area far away from your own country. So who are they at war with? Well, Russia. Then somehow you got to transport it to the Eastern Front. Now, some people believe, like Joseph Farrell, that the Nazis actually did test and have a working prototype of some sort of atomic weapon device. Maybe not the full bomb, but they had actually tested it on the Russians, again, their natural ideological enemy that they hated the most, somewhere on the Eastern Front and that you didn't really hear about it from the Russians because it would have upset the power structure there, especially with Stalin, and that it would have caused a lot of doubt, all this kind of chaos. I don't know about that aspect of it, but he's thinking, though, that they were in the process of experimenting with it, use maybe some kind of a dirty bomb device even, something like that, something that was lethal that killed a lot of soldiers. So that had already been done. But if you're at war with the United States, you need a method of getting this big bomb, and you can either do it through a rocket, so their V-2 rocket program was not capable enough to deliver something that heavy, that huge distance. They couldn't reach the range. But you could get it there by plane, because we certainly did in Hiroshima. Right. So coming back to the bell and how the bell might have been involved in this process, acquiring the uranium, it gets really dense, no pun intended, but it's... It's fascinating. The whole story of uranium is fascinating, as we pointed out in that documentary, Uranium Twisting the Dragon's Tail, which was a Australian-produced documentary aired on PBS, and we will have a link to it. I think that's still for free, at, uh, at least in this one link on Daily Motion. So we'll we'll provide it. It's worth a watch, or you can buy it on iTunes like I did. Yeah. Yeah, so I took, nice. a bunch of, I took a bunch of notes, but it, it explains very elegantly and simply the whole history of uranium and why it has changed the world. Right. So one of the things is that the naturally occurring uranium that you find in the earth is not weapons grade. It is only 0.07%, I believe. Yeah, most of the uranium ore that's pulled out from the ground is uranium-238, which means the nucleus contains 238 protons and neutrons. And when you pull it out of the ground, fewer than one in a hundred nuclei of uranium is uranium-235, which has three fewer neutrons in it, which is what you need to make it the most splittable. Right. And you can also apparently use uranium-233 to create a weapon as well. And here's the interesting thing. This is how it comes back to the bell. 
There are people who will tell you that the Bell was a particle accelerator that was designed to breed uranium-233 by bombarding an element known as thorium-232 with neutrons. So the way that this thing supposedly would have worked is you would have had the thorium-232, you turn on the particle accelerator, it bombards it with neutrons and actually creates protactinium-233. One of the granddaughters of uranium. Yes, so bear with us here. The protactinium-233 will naturally degrade into weapons-grade uranium-233 in just 27 days. I'm just going to sum that up again because it took me a while to wrap my head around this. Mm. Thorium is three to five times more abundant in nature than uranium. It's all around. And in fact, there's a mine, a thorium mine near the Wenceslas mine where the bell was. So you're not going to have a problem getting thorium. So you take the thorium, you take it, you put it in the bell, however that works. I'm sure there's a little, it's like the back of the, back of the future <laughs> the car. Gas you, you have to look on which side of the, is it on the right or the yeah. driver's side or the uh, You the open it up, side. you dump in the thorium. Yeah, you don't want to back up to the pump the wrong way. We're reaching yeah. the limits of our understanding. <laughs> but you put the thorium in there, you turn this thing on, it creates protactinium, and then you take the protactinium, and if you wait less than 30 days, you have weapons-grade uranium-233. However, 233 yeah. is not the most desired version of uranium for weapons, but I'm not sure they knew that at that time. 235 is better. But what this does is it provides them an ability to have an endless supply of fuel that they can create for these weapons and get it going in less than 30 days as long as they have access to a thorium mine. Right. See, that's one of the three, you know, agreed upon purposes for this Bell device. One, Germany needs its own power supply. It cannot be dependent on oil from other countries, as we've said before in the uh, book, uh, the formula, they were working on a way to make synthetic oil. So then you don't need to rely on crude oil shipments from other countries, which that's very unstable. Two is that this could also be a major weapon, a mega weapon, a Nazi mega weapon, which we notice here is that, and you probably notice yourself out there in the audience, is that nuclear power and nuclear weapons, very small difference between one of the two. One's a controlled reaction that you can create, you know, heat and steam from and and generate electricity with. The other one, you just, you set off. It causes a cascading chain reaction that can wipe out whole cities. Right. The third possible, and depends on how your logic lies in this crazy discussion, the third thing is some kind of anti-gravity, zero-point energy field propulsion device. Say that uh, seven times fast. And that would also be an engine of some kind. So those are the three most bandied about ideas for this Bell device. Right. So I spoke with our resident scientist over at the Astonishing Research Corps, Chris Cogswell, who is a chemical engineer. He's not a a nuclear scientist, but he understands this stuff pretty well. And I was asking him about these questions about this possibility of the Bell being this device that was breeding protactinium from thorium to have it degrade into uranium. And I also asked him about uranium-233 versus 235, because 235 is the targeted isotope of uranium that they're looking for these days. He said that 233 is not as usable in weapons as uranium-235 or plutonium, because it can also create uranium-232, which releases what he called a comical amount of gamma radiation that makes it all (laughs) almost impossible to work with safely. I asked him what exactly a comical amount of gamma radiation was, and he said, it's like a melt-your-skin amount. (laughs) Ah, so you mean comical, not in the... 
turning into the Hulk fashion. No, more yeah. comical opening the arc uh, fashion. Oh, yeah, so yeah. opening the arc and you're that Nazi who, who gets his face melted. Yeah. He pointed out pretty quickly there that only five bombs have ever been tested with uranium-233. 235 is the targeted isotope of uranium that you want to have. So what they were doing here, he said, may have been at the time in pursuit, and this is just a theory that some people have posited Mm -hmm. online, pursuing something that's completely plausible, this idea that they could make this 233 and then make the bombs from the uranium-233. And they might have thought that would worked because they didn't understand the dangers of working with it until it was too late. Right. So for us internally, for the Astonishing Legends and the Astonishing Research Corps, while this is an interesting idea of this device, it does not seem like something that would have functioned. No, but you're in the ballpark. That's also what I got from Chris Cogswell's inklings, his thoughts on the matter was that, well, of all these crazy beryllium peroxides and your red mercuries and you got your, your Lichtmetals and, and all these exotic things like 0525. Which is supposedly what fueled the bell. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, code name for something else because it's serum five, you know, what does that mean? Is yeah. that the address of the mine? <laughs> Why is it? There's an old post-production place here called 525. That well, that was for the number down. of scan lines and NTSC video stream. Exactly, right. So it, it means something. People don't just pick out names. It usually means something. So what he was surmising was that, well, you're in the ballpark with, of course, nuclear research in the areas of energy production and weaponry. But who knows exactly, because again, these are very fine lines. This is very dangerous work to begin with. Who knows exactly what they were doing? Now, what I will say in this area, that I, I think a lot of the people that have studied this field and have written books about it, I think most believe that their atomic research and the Bell research were two separate things and that the atomic research for energy production, their normal atomic bomb research, was not even classified as high as the Bell research, which was Krieg and Scheiden. So that was war decisive, which means, okay, we got our atomic bomb research going on over here. That's very promising. That could blow up whole cities like Stalingrad. On the other hand, this thing could wipe out a, (laughs) a whole nation and send them back into the Stone Age, literally. Who knows? Or this thing could power a fleet of flying saucers to go to Antarctica or the moon. Okay, so before we move on, we did want to take a moment to spend some time on one of our patented tangents. And I think it's a worthwhile tangent. (laughs) Did you remember to file a patent for that? (laughs) The patent office in Bern, Switzerland? Yeah, the patent's pending. You can't talk about all this stuff and about uranium and truly understanding the idea of the bell and how the bell might have contributed to uranium enrichment. We had to do a lot of reading A lot of times the research we do is more so we can figure out what not to say than Ah, it is what to say. We just usually forget stuff to say. Well, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. We... You know, we have all those emails that come in. You actually mispronounced (laughs) biscuit. So I just want to be clear on this centrifuge discussion. We are in no way experts nor claiming to be experts on it. But here's the interesting thing about how centrifuges get involved in enriching uranium for nuclear weapons. You want to explain a little bit why you have to enrich? Yes. Or did we say that Well, what happens is when you mine the uranium, it's like you said, you mine these huge quantities of uranium. Right. But what comes out of the ground is the 238, and what you want is the uranium-235, and less than 1% of the uranium that is mined is 235. Yeah, mostly what comes out of the ground is is U-238. Now, here's a little explainer, which again, tangent upon tangent upon diversion here. This is a little fun factoid that uh, I had forgotten about, and it's always nice to be reminded again from school. What differentiates one element from another, like helium between oxygen and, uh, and carbon, is 
the number of protons inside each nucleus. So hydrogen, the most plentiful atom in the universe, one proton. An atom with two protons is helium. An atom with six protons is carbon. Gold has 79 protons. So when you change the number of protons, or when an element does naturally, which is pretty rare, uranium does that by itself, gives off energy, it changes into something else. So when, when Scott says that uranium changes into thorium, into protactinium, to radium and radon and blah, 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 and so forth, 14 times, it is actually becoming a brand new element. So when we say uranium-235, it's because that is the number of protons and neutrons added together. And so the uranium nucleus has a whopping 92 protons and usually 146 neutrons. And that can vary. So that is a large, large nucleus. I think the biggest on Earth that we know of. So because it's so large, it strains under its own weight, held together by the strong nuclear force, the strongest force in the universe, and that makes it unstable. It is straining and bulging. And now when you upset that, if you shoot a proton into that nucleus, it tips the scale. It knocks it off balance. It gives off energy. It throws off chunks of itself. And that is radiation. And that is what Rutherford and Saudi had discovered, that it does this naturally. No one had ever known that before. Right. And that's what radiation is. It's giving off chunks. And so that is the seed, the seeding here, the idea for a nuclear bomb. Continuing on from this, the idea for an atom bomb actually comes from not a physicist or a chemist, but a novelist, H.G. Wells, when he wrote the book, The World Set Free. He dedicates that book to Frederick Soddy, who was one of the two guys who, along with Ernest Rutherford, discovered that radiation comes off of the uranium nucleus when it naturally spits off chunks of itself. Now, who gets the idea for this while stopping in a street corner for our London listeners, Southampton Row in Russell Square? He gets the idea of like, wait, well, what would you need to create this atom bomb that I read about in H.G. Wells' novel, The World Set Free? How would you trigger that? Well, you manipulate the atom. If you are able to affect this instability within the uranium atom, that is, these protons leaving the uranium nucleus are giving off energy in the form of radiation. If that strikes another nucleus, that will start a cascading chain reaction, hitting two, two hit four, four hit eight, 16, and within 60 steps, you have a quintillion atoms releasing energy. Right, and you have to have a certain amount to start with to get this to work, and that's called the critical mass, and it's, yes, not, it's not the exactly. bike ride. <laughs> no, but, no um, the topless bike ride. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, they weren't uh, topless yeah. when I did them in New York. Oh, you missed out, man. Yeah. Well, it's, it's cold there, too. Uh, <laughs> no, people hated it. I, st I did it once. Nobody man. wanted to see you topless with electrical tape I wasn't topless. Oh, you see. Okay, well, that's a different story. Yeah. But that's what Leo Zillard, this Hungarian physicist, realized standing on the street corner is like, it can be done. What force is just described is a chain reaction. So what's happening is you have critical mass, which is a certain number of these atoms. Yes. Reacting together, which all you have to do is get that first group of critical mass to explode into the other ones around them and keep going. And yes. once they get past 60 steps, you have a nuclear explosion. That's called fission. Yeah. So usually in a nuclear thermonuclear device, you have a core of this uranium or plutonium in a ball you need a evenly explosive charge around the whole thing to compress the atoms. Perfectly. That, yes. So you have a primary stage and a secondary stage. 
that's where the talk of well, all this red mercury comes in, that maybe that's a cheaper, much, much smaller way to do that. So you could have a suitcase pocket or softball nuke to great effect or create kind of a neutron bomb with that. Now, if you look at the Trinity site where they did the first nuclear test explosion, they rigged a 100-foot-tall scaffolding, this tower, to loft a massive ball. I think this is maybe six, eight feet wide in diameter. And I believe it was TNT. They spread evenly around. You have to detonate it all at once perfectly so it creates this compression. That releases the secondary stage of the explosion, and then you have this cascading chain reaction. So Leo Zillard, again... One of the Hungarian physicists and a Jew had left Europe because of Hitler, gone to London, gets this idea of like, there's a brilliant chemist named Otto Hahn. And just so you know, yes, chemistry and physics go hand in hand. They often overlap. But he was a student of Ernest Rutherford's at the time they made their discovery. And what Otto Hahn did is that he was the first to split the atom of uranium. When we say splitting the atom, what you really mean is splitting the nucleus. So he had some puzzling results that he wasn't sure, you know, what's going on here with this very strange reactions. He sends his results to his Jewish colleague, Lise Meitner, who is also a physicist, and she had also fled Germany. And she figured out what he had done. And he split the uranium atom, something nobody had thought possible prior to that. So Leo Zillard is very worried because now Germany has the knowledge to do this, to create this splitting of the uranium atom. And they have the uranium fuel to do it within the mine at Jochumstahl. They got all the materials. Okay, but this uranium that is in the mines and that occurs naturally is right. primarily, by an overwhelming majority, over 99%, uranium-238. And they need it yeah. to be 235. So exactly. how do they enrich it? I'm going to tell you exactly the steps so you at home can make your own atom bomb. But that's the idea is that what they have to do then is... Like we said before, one out of 100 uranium atoms is this uranium-235, which is what you need, not the U-238. So you have to individually mine and process these atoms, think about that, on an industrial scale, which is what the United States did. Because you think in this very short period of time, the U.S., with the help of the captured German scientists from Operation Paperclip, were able to do this using their knowledge for the last push. What we know at the end of it was that, of course, the Germans get captured, Russia invades, uh, Hitler supposedly kills himself in the Führer bunker, and it turns out they really didn't have a bomb. Now, that is not to say they weren't working on something. And again, you wouldn't know that because that might still be classified information about how far they got, because guess what? We got our share of that. The Russians got the other share. And according to some, in John Ventry, we didn't even get the best scientists. Right. <laughs> we got really good ones. Werner von Braun, Otto Cerny, they figured out how to uh, get our rocketry program Ventry going. described von Braun as mid-level. <laughs> A bench warmer, maybe. Yeah. Who was it that the Russians got, then passed away at the age of 61. So yes. they got the smarter guy, but he didn't last as long. Well, there you go. You go for the long haul. Because, yeah. again, look at what we're able to accomplish. But here's an interesting tidbit that when we say that the U.S. got going, you know how that happened? Well, Leo Zillard is in London. He is now very worried. He is thinking that uh, the Germans now have the uranium material from the Joachimstahl mine, the Pischblende. They have the knowledge within Otto Hahn of being able to split the atom. Well, he is not famous enough as a chemist or physicist or scientist in general to get the attention of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States, but he does know somebody who happens to be the most famous scientist in the world at that point, Albert Einstein. 
who had also fled Europe and is now renting a summer home in Long Island. And Leo Szilard meets with Einstein in person and tells him about this idea. Now, Einstein had never really thought about this before, but now he does, and now he realizes, ooh, the Nazis with a nuclear device? This is bad. So on August 2nd, 1939, he drafts a letter to FDR, which does get his attention, saying like, hey, this is bad news, so we better start doing something about this, warning him that the Nazis are possibly, probably, working on a uranium bomb. And so Roosevelt now orders that research begin on making our own American uranium bomb, and he gives the green light to the Army Corps of Engineers handled out of the Manhattan District, and it becomes known as the Manhattan Project. So there you, there you go. go. Yeah. So this tracks all of it. But getting back to your question, how do they enrich it? Don't exactly know, but I know why they have to, because again, as we said, uranium-238 is not the form of the uranium atom that you want. You want 235. So three neutrons lighter is a infinitesimally small amount, but it is an amount that they can exploit. That's what enrichment means. You are getting U-238 to become U-235. You are enriching it, which is a difficult process. Think about it. You're mining and processing atoms. Right. And there's a couple of different ways to do this. There's a couple of different ways, but think about it in connection to the bell. What is one of the main things that the bell is said to have done? Spin. At a internally. Very, internally yeah. at a very high rate of speed, which is what you need. Right. Now, I personally don't think that that is maybe what they were doing, that the counter-rotating cylinders with a strange material may have an electromagnetic effect. With a centrifuge-type device, you wouldn't need counter-rotation. Exactly. I don't, I don't believe so. You don't I'm need counter-rotation. I'm not counter saying rotation. that categorically because no, I don't know. <laughs> right, but. but they're not doing it to be efficient or anything. Yeah. I think it has a different purpose. And again, I'm of the belief that the atomic program and the Bell program were separate, related very closely, maybe even shared some knowledge between uh, Walter Gerlach, who is, I think, the head scientist supposedly on the Bell, yes, and Otto Hahn. And here's the other interesting thing. I think we mentioned this in part one, but it bears repeating. The Bell's location in the building that it was housed in were over a shaft at the Wenceslas mine known as the Walter Shaft. There you go. That's and not a was, name either. That's, and it was it's, a, newer, it's a mine shaft, yeah. Yeah, a newer it was a newer shaft as yeah. well. So it's possible it was named for him, another indication that the bell was definitely there. The shaft had been enlarged at the opening and refurbished in a way. Why would you need to do that unless you were moving something very large into the space? Before we get off of this, I do want to talk about centrifuges real quick because I don't know another time we're going to have to be able to talk about this next little bit, which <laughs> right. I think this is something really interesting. Some of our listeners may be familiar with a malicious software bug known as Stuxnet. Since we're here, I wanted to talk a little bit about how a centrifuge works and how it enriches uranium. Just a very brief overview of it. They find that it's easier to undergo the enrichment process by introducing acid that turns the uranium into a gas. They yes. take this gas and they put it into a centrifuge and they spin it. And they spin it real fast. It has to go up to 100,000 revolutions per minute. Yeah. And when they do this, the uranium-238, which is not weapons grade, and the 235 separate from each other because they are infinitesimally different in weight. Yes. The 235 moves to the center of the centrifuge, and the 238 moves to the outside. But you have to spin a long, long time, and then you do this, and then you remove the gas at the middle, 
and you have a higher concentration of the 235. Then you stick it in another centrifuge and you do it again. And you do it over and over and it right. takes a long, long time. Yes. And the centrifuges have to be perfect. They have to rotate at the right speed. This you is need why a lot of power and you need it consistent and you need it even. This is why it takes developing countries a long time to develop weapons grade uranium because of these centrifuges. This is a high-tech situation. So it's not clear who did this. There are some theories that it was a joint American and Israeli operation, but this brilliant worm was created called Stuxnet. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to any tech news or that kind of thing, but maybe you've heard of the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things is, is the new deal now. If you have a smart house, and that's on the consumer level or at the industrial level, you have a hydroelectric dam that everything is controlled by the Internet, and then you have these controllers and equipment that control this industrial-level equipment, whether it's a wastewater plant or whatever. And a lot of that equipment is controlled via Microsoft Windows and controllers that are built by Siemens, the German companies. Ooh. Yes. Next step is the Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you get there. So what they did was, whether it was the Israelis or the Americans or somebody else in a joint operation, they took this worm. It's that, diabolically ingenious. It really is because they took it and they needed to get it into a completely isolated system in Iran, where Iran was trying to enrich uranium and their system was not connected to the outside internet in any way. So but they, you don't need that. Right. They took it and put it on a USB drive, like a thumb drive or a flash drive. I guess, I don't know, left it laying on somebody's desk? I don't even think you have we to We don't do really that. know exactly. No, but right. here's the point of that. These are very smart guys, the top of their field. You want to keep this facility sealed off from outside prying eyes and malicious viruses and worms so guys are not inside the facility surfing the web. It's totally isolated. And so you have a problem if you're trying to introduce this malicious worm. How do you get it in there? Well, you don't try and hack your way in. That's too difficult, trying to hack passwords and such. You use the human element, which is always fallible. <laughs> human right. beings will always shoot themselves in the foot. Like you said, how do you get it in there? If you leave it on a drive, all you have to do is you write on the outside company salaries on it. Right. That's all you have to do. You maybe even have to, to not label it. How many people are curious? You see, oh, here's a jump drive at the local Starbucks here in Tehran. Like, I wonder what's on this thing. Right. Somebody picks that up. They plug it into their laptop, which they use at the facility, or they take it into the facility themselves. They plug it in, and boom, it's done. The Trojan horse and is it's not one drive. All you got to do is drop one on the floor at every internet cafe in the area. Yeah. Somebody, you don't even need anyone person. on the inside. That's the thing. A human being, like a rat going into a ship carrying the plague, that's all you need. It's now inside, so you've gotten through that one barrier, and then the worm does the rest. So here comes the part about the worm and all the stuff that we hope, if you've been taking notes, kids... And like we said, this episode might not have been the one to be doing a workout. Because <laughs> it's this is kind of intense. Of course, we have a lot that are intense. And the idea is it's actually pretty simple. The steps are ingenious. Yeah. Yeah. So what this thing was designed to do was attack the Iranian centrifuges. Because that process that takes years and years and the enriching and the spinning and then take it out and spin it again and keep spinning it and all that stuff is controlled by the Siemens controllers and the Microsoft Word. And all they have to do is just change the speed on those centrifuges a little bit. That's why we said it's such a precise method 
and it has to be exact or right. you don't get the desired result and you're set back years. And that's what they did. But then here's the other brilliant thing. The worm not only altered the speed of the centrifuges, it covered it, it masked its trail so that in the analysis of the controllers and the looking at the reports and all the feedback, everything was right on track. Yes, it sent back re reports that everything was a-okay and groovy and you're right on track when it really wasn't. So you don't even know to look for a problem. And it's still kind of a failure because ideally they wouldn't have caught it. It was designed to make itself go away. And then uh. they would have had to wonder why their enrichment program wasn't working. But apparently they caught it in the act. And as a result, they were able to say, oh. But apparently, though, it did put them behind. It definitely put them so behind. It, it, it bought us. It but not as behind as they would have been if they hadn't caught it. Right. That's what Stuxnet did. That shows you how important centrifuges is. And this tangent comes back around for us because it explains how the idea of the bell somehow being involved in enriching uranium to make weapons-grade material is a plausible idea. And it would have been, even if it had been doing the breeder reactor mm -hmm. situation that we had talked about that Chris Cogswell said the byproducts of would have been very bad, the idea of that still would have been way ahead of its time at that point, as far as we can tell. Yeah. So whatever was going on there, that is the one theory about what the bell was for everybody. It was, what is the bell? You haven't said. This is one of the major theories, was that somehow it was involved in making that happen. Nuclear energy generation. You know, doing all this research on the bell has made me want to go back and really dive into World War II history. I mean, we're looking at some of the far-out alternative twists, but the broader story really puts those theories into context. I know what you mean. It's reminding me of how much I've forgotten since school. But with the Great Courses Plus, it's like having the best colleges come to you while avoiding the massive tuition and student loan debt. And you get taught by some of the best award-winning professors and experts in the field. You can try it out now with a full month of free unlimited video courses when you sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. They have over 8,000 lectures available, and they're adding more all the time. They have courses on your traditional subjects like history and science, but each lecture has its own fascinating angle. And then there's topics like world travel, a wine tasting toolkit, gardening and grilling. Learn skills that can improve your life. Grilling and picking the right wines I could definitely use some help with, but I'm still enjoying learning about those mysterious Etruscans. Right, so which lecture are you on now? Etruscan myths, legends, and heroes. Ah, of course. So tell us about an Etruscan legend. Okay, well, the most important story in Etruscan mythology is the legend of Tages. I think I know where Star Trek's getting its character names from. <laughs> right. Tarkhan is out plowing his field when an infant pops up out of the ground, and this baby named Tages looks like an old man with wrinkles, teeth, and male pattern baldness. Tages then dictates all of the divination practices and key religious rituals before either disappearing, dying, or I guess being carried home by Tarkhan. Aha! More autochthony with a legend of baby Charlie Brown, or maybe Benjamin Button, I guess. Those are both great legends, but no. Learn about the real legends during your first free month just by signing up through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. And you can stream all of this fascinating knowledge from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. Start on one device and pick up from any other. We know you're going to love it like we do, so don't wait. Get your free month by signing up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. I'm Jose Garcia Chow, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about, this could have gone at the end, but I wanted to put it in the middle here because it segues nicely into our next topic, and that's just the idea of disinformation. I'm sure we have a lot of listeners that are all about disinformation and understand what it is, but for Mm. others that don't, that are less conspiratorial in their nature, it's just the idea of sophisticated propaganda designed to mask what's really going on. It's done for several purposes. Either you put out a piece of disinformation to throw people off the trail of the real information, or you put it out there to see who bites, because spies will do that. Right. If you're trying to flush out a mole in your organization, you put out some disinformation, you see if that disinformation gets spread, then you know who did it. Exactly. It's going to come up again as we're talking about the bell, and it's going to come up anytime we're talking about anything kind of conspiratorial or missing or mysterious. And governments around the world excel at disinformation. It makes total sense as a viable defense against rogue powers, acquiring knowledge of this type. So you can see the inherent value of CIA operatives, for example, being placed in the research community to make strong claims that the bell is some kind of far-out fantastic but completely unbuildable device for anti-gravity propulsion or time travel. Because these are claims that, if you're a skeptic, are easily dismissed, in which case you might dismiss the entire idea of the bell. Or conversely, they are claims that if you try to replicate, they may be impossible to replicate, whether they're true or not, because of the high state of technology. And the more time and resources you put into it, the less time and resources you have to pursue the idea of, say, I don't know, quickly creating bomb-grade uranium. Now, because of disinformation, when it comes to global superpowers and war, we can never know for sure if what we're talking about is real. Which brings us to another one of our well-thought-out tangents, although this one is more organic than the centrifuge one, I think. Mm. This is a real red flag for debunkers, <laughs> right? Uh, pun intended, and yeah. that is red mercury. Yes, begin rolling your eyeballs. I'm pretty yeah. sure that red mercury was featured prominently in at least one of the Die Hard movies. Wasn't there a liquid bomb? With it's in red for everything. Fl- they put is, red fluid in it. Yes, you have to have a tube with red liquid in it and blue liquid, and then the device together. yeah mixes together and kaboom. But it's been featured in so many comic books, video games. Everything. And this is what I told Scott, and he had a great reply to it that I loved. We were talking about over lunch, and I said, well, it stands for a bunch of different things, in my opinion. It's the boogeyman. I said, what does the boogeyman stand for you? Everything you're afraid of. Exactly. Yeah. It's a name that covers so much. It does, and it's interesting. And we like to talk about it because this is what we do the show, is it's fun. We want to talk about the directly rational stuff, but we also want to talk a little bit about the more rational stuff, because when you talk about it, you learn more about it, and you, again, can make your own decision about whether or not red mercury is real. Yeah, exactly. And you have to say it like that. But <laughs> it, So red mercury has been attributed with a variety of what you might almost call magical powers, coming in such forms as hot red mercury and cold red mercury, with one liter of this liquid costing $1 million. Wow. Also, here's another way that you can test to see if your red mercury is uh-huh. real. Yeah. You can take some of it and put it on a plate, and if there's garlic on the plate— <laughs> And it moves away from the garlic. Yeah. You know it's repelled by garlic. It's real. And then if, but you know what it's attracted to? Yeah. Gold. Well, yeah. So it's vampiric, greedy, yeah. red mercury. Greedy yes. red mercury. Now, arms experts the world over who supply terrorists with the things they need to wage their horrible terror campaigns apparently have long lists of details about what real red mercury will and won't do. Another thing that they will tell you is that it comes in a small container that if opened incorrectly, 
can flatten an eight-kilometer radius. Oh, my gosh. So push down while twisting. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. You really mm-hmm. want to get that one right. Now, yeah. in November of 2015, and you guys may have heard about this, this is kind of a famous story if you follow any kind of spy stuff, or which I love this kind of news. I'm always reading about spy yes. things. Yes. Journalist C.J. Chiver, could be Chiver, I'm not sure, it's C-H-I-V-E-R, mm. wrote an article in the New York Times called The Doomsday Scam. Uh which is the most thorough article on this. In this article, he writes of an effort by an ISIS terrorist or a supplier for ISIS to acquire red mercury on behalf of the Islamic State. And in the article, this is one of my favorite descriptions of it. It comes straight out of the article. Precious and rare, exceptionally dangerous and exorbitantly expensive, its properties unmatched by any compound known to science. It was the stuff of doomsday dreams. According to well-traveled tales of its potency, when detonated in combination with conventional high explosives, red mercury could create the city-flattening blast of a nuclear bomb. In another application, a famous nuclear scientist once suggested it could be used as a component in a neutron bomb small enough to fit in a sandwich-sized paper bag. Well, that's convenient. According to the International Atomic Energy Authority, red mercury is, quote, a bunch of malarkey, end quote. So what's happening here? These terror organizations are spending millions of dollars, or were anyway, they might have gotten wise, undertaking great effort to get this supposedly mythical substance. Well, you don't want to be Doc Brown ripping off the terrorists because they come after you. Yes. Then you have to go back in time. They found me. I don't know how. (laughs) This is where I'm going to come back to the disinformation point and why I wanted to put it in front of this. Debunkers get crazy with conspiracy theorists because they continue to self-confirm their conspiracies. They just, anything you say that disproves it, yeah. There's a phrase for this, and I can't. I don't feel like looking it up right now. But anything you say that <laughs> disproves it, they just say, "Well, you can't. That doesn't count." You know. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that going on here. But if some form of red mercury is real, the next thing that I think about is the usual suspects. Mm. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. I know we've quoted that a lot. It's one of the best quotes ever. Yeah. But but well, my point somebody, is like, yeah. said near the Count of St. Germain. So that is another time. Yeah, yeah, right. Said near Kevin Pollack. Yes, that was a Kaiser Sose being interviewed. Yes, yeah. that was Kaiser being interviewed. But the point is, if it is a real substance, then the best thing you can do is convince people that it's not. On the other hand, the CIA and the world powers who are concerned about terrorist powers seem to be okay with the fact that they're trying to acquire it, yeah. which does lead you to believe that it probably isn't real or it's impossible to attain or create. It's everything. It goes both ways. It doesn't exist, and it does exist if you're trying to buy it. We'll take your money and arrest you. But yeah. for the rest of you, it doesn't exist. Don't worry about it. Dual purpose. Didn't you tell me last week, though, that there was a prominent professor who stated that red mercury was real? Well, in the article you just suggested here, that uh, which you quoted... In another application, a famous nuclear scientist once suggested it could be used as a component in a neutron bomb small enough to fit in a sandwich size paper bag. Right, that I just Well, yes, that famous nuclear scientist is Samuel T. Cohen. Samuel T. Cohen is not just a guy writing cheap paperbacks to try and make a buck. He is the father of the neutron bomb. To simplify that, remember the description on that one? That is the bomb that leaves the building standings and kills everyone else and kills all the people. So originally he developed that as a method to possibly confront the massive Soviet buildup of a humongous amount of troops in Eastern Europe, possibly advancing towards Western Europe, which they did not want. But you're now using nuclear weapons around friendly countries like Germany How do you keep from flattening Germany literally into a glowing mess, but get rid of the advancing Russian army? Well, you do that with a neutron bomb, which is basically bombarding them with massive amounts of neutron radiation 
protons being thrown at them, which can penetrate their armor. Again, even if you have a mass of Russian tanks advancing, you still get to kill all the people, but leave the buildings, your German friends' buildings standing. So Samuel T. Cohen, though, was a firm believer in red mercury as a powerful explosive-like chemical that he called a ballotechnic. That is a chemical nuclear component that generates a tremendous amount of heat, but not a lot of mass exchange, so there's not a huge explosion. So that counters the idea, though, of using it to create a small nuclear weapon device. The big worry here that he had was that now you could have something the size of a cantaloupe or grapefruit that is a nuclear bomb, very hard to detect, especially on the world nuclear black market trade in these kind of things. Saddam Hussein personally bought 10 of them. There was 50 created by Russian scientists. So this is a weird problem here because this guy's no slouch. Right. He knows what he's talking about. You might be a chemist out there, but did you create the neutron bomb? On the other hand, obviously he might be a little eccentric in his beliefs. But you know who else was another eccentric scientist? Albert Einstein with the hair and the pipe and the wearing of the sweatshirts every day. He would also be considered kind of eccentric. So there you have the problem is that you have a very credible source and by others, not a very credible source, but not in the subject, only on this particular point that he believed red mercury existed. Now, as a substance itself, that's my point where I kind of make a departure is that there might be a manufactured substance that is red mercury or, or not, or something similar, but it's not red. It has nothing to do with mercury but it has the same effect. Now he claimed a red mercury bomb would require no fissile material. So it would be impossible to protect because now what you're doing is that you're able to use it to set off a nuclear bomb without having a giant explosion to compress the material to get the chain reaction. On the other hand, as a ballotechnic, there isn't a huge explosion required, which is what you need. You just have a lot of heat. So who knows? And so the science doesn't stand up. There's another big name and a huge brain that also shows up in the Fermi Paradox episode. These are some of the top scientists in this field. Disagrees with them. So it's hard to say, but again, it's an interesting, it posits an interesting dilemma here. Now, what he claimed, Samuel T. Cohen, is that the American authorities know it exists, but they're claiming it doesn't because the implications that it does exist and it's out there on the black market are too frightening to comprehend. So to quell panic, they just say, well, it's a fictional material and don't worry about it. Well, at the same time, oh my gosh, it's out there. Now, here's another claim made by Cohen that appears in the, in the wiki entry here, that veteran nuclear weapon designer Dr. Frank Barnaby conducted secret interviews with Russian scientists who told him that red mercury was produced by dissolving mercury antimony oxide in mercury, heating and irradiating the resultant amalgam, and then removing the elemental mercury through evaporation. The irradiation was reportedly carried out by placing the substance inside a nuclear reactor. So, nuclear reactor, the bell, red mercury. There's obvious tie-ins, but are people adding these kind of bits of information way after the Bell story to make it juicier? It's a good question, but I, there and again, here we go again with a, a game changer. And this is why my argument is that red mercury is also the magic ingredient in stealth paint, or you can make metallic hydrogen with it. Another it just does anything you want it, it to do. That's exactly right. It does. It's the magic ingredient that does whatever you want it to. But which is a perfect yeah. cover for magic ingredients. By the way. <laughs> it just does. because if you have yeah. magic ingredients and you're concerned about the intel of their makeup getting out there, you can just say, "Oh, it contains red mercury." 
Right. And that's the thing. If you're not a physicist or nuclear scientist or chemist, but you got access to cash and you want to give your side a huge advantage, you just know you need it. So you go around asking for it, which is always, yeah, don't do that because you're going to end up on a 48 hours episode. Yeah. The thing with red mercury is that I don't care so much about that. I want to know what Zerum 525 was and these things that create very experimental and possibly explosive plasmas. Which in Zerum 525, just to restate for our listeners, is what they said also possibly the bell operated on. In the interrogation papers, I believe. Yeah, right? that was a code name for some kind of strange metallic fluid. Again, it, it might be a, one thing uh, Chris pointed out, rubidium, which we'd mentioned in part one, under the flame tests, and I believe at high heat and under their experimental conditions, glows purple, which is another condition and description of the bell was that once during operation fired up, this thing generated a deep violet purple color glow. The light blue glow, I believe, was seen by prisoners at the nearby concentration camp who saw barrel-like devices rising above the tree line and then descending again, that gives purpose and power to the argument of the anti-gravity device. So it opens up a bunch of questions, but as far as Samuel T. Cohen is concerned, his stance is that he's very afraid that now these things are being passed around undetectable and we should do something about it. And it works. So from my standpoint, I can't argue with them about nuclear physics. I can only say like, well, maybe that sounds a little shaky, but who knows? All right. So this comes to one of the other theories that's a little bit on the crazier side, but also (laughs) incidentally, I believe the one that Vitkowski is most behind. And that's the idea that the Bell was involved in some sort of anti-gravity propulsion device experiment, whether the Bell itself was it or it was creating power for that or that kind of thing, how it was created. You can't talk about this without talking about, and they're not necessarily connected, but I do want to mention this, the Hanabu craft, which is a saucer-shaped... I mean, traditional, like, 50 sci-fi looking... Yeah, sci-fi shaped UFO that the Nazis built that had gun emplacements on it and supposedly first appeared in 1939. So let's talk about this. There are folks that will tell you there's credible evidence supporting the idea that this was developed. There's papers. You can find all this stuff online. I don't know how accurate it is. We did not because this is not what this show was about. This episode was about the bell, so we didn't do any hardcore fact-checking on the Hanabu. Oh, my gosh. Nazi UFOs is, that's another section. We're going to get letters asking about this because there's a lot of fans out there I know, and I myself find it fascinating. That gets nuts, going to Antarctica and secret Nazi base there, all the way to the moon. Well, you have to listen to this, and this really is a can of worms. Now, apparently the Hanabu saw four generations of production, and it was built by an occultist subsection of the SS known as the Order of the Black Sun. Oh, that sounds right for fictional purposes. I believe that the way the Black Sun works is there's the presence of a black sun that is invisible in this dimension but still transmits power to us, to our dimension, and that there's a way to harness the power of this black sun and use it for things such as propulsion. There's two branches, one sort of crazy, the other one not so sort of crazy. That, what you just described, is interdimensional beams of invisible energy being able to be harnessed, focused with concentration and thought and ESP, and all that, and powering different things. And that's the fringe side. The not-so-fringe side is that what you're kind of describing here is dark matter. They've known about dark matter, or what they called missing mass, since the 30s. This idea of the black sun 
is way before that, pre-turn of the century, or maybe even older, if you believe some occultists, that it is an ancient, even Sumerian type of idea, technology, power source. But the idea of dark matter is that this is what we currently now know about the universe, is that most of the universe is made up of this void energy, this dark matter. In fact, we said this before, that Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't even want to call it dark matter because it may not be matter at all. We don't know what it is. <laughs> Knowing to you, this, this made me laugh. He said, well, we should call it Fred. Yeah, <laughs> because it he be, did. He did say Neil that, Degra yes. I have made a he joke did, in the that past about... not confirming your Fred usage. About God's yeah. name possibly being Fred. I think <laughs> yeah. I was, was on Oak Island. I was, when we were talking uh, you, about those... You did it a few times, though. yes. Yeah. The, delta, the golden delta. Uh, and then in the the out of the blue, chambers. out of the blue, Neil deGrasse Tyson says we should name dark matter Fred. <laughs> I just want to say it validates no. My no? It, no, it validates no. He did not get that from you or listen to our podcast. Oh, that would have been the really fun thing. Like, well, oh, it's I synchronicity that. at yeah. the very least. I will say that uh, Fred's a good name. I'll give you yeah. that. It's a good name for this unknown, which we know now makes up most of the matter, 85%. And how they know this, this is also fascinating. Astronomers and astrophysicists can add up the mass of everything that we know about and can see. Black holes, comets, planets, stars, everything. It's and a big it's, calculator. It's a big calculator and it's a lot of numbers, but it's only, and it's a lot of number crunching, but it's only 14% maybe or less. And 85% of the universe, we don't know what's happening out there. Although through microwave telemetry, we can sense that it's giving off energy. So the void is energy itself. And that's what we're talking about when we tie this in with the black sun is that somehow Hanabu is, and the Vril Society are able to harness this void energy and use it. Well, the Hanabu craft went all the way through four generations. The first one appeared in 1939 and supposedly used a revolutionary form of electromagnetism and anti-gravity propulsion. Right. So now we're back to zero point uh, energy field propulsion for craft, which is provable here terrestrially on Earth that it works. It has not been, as we know of yet, applied to flying craft in outer space, but maybe that's what those black triangles are. Again, we're getting to two big questions I have about this whole topic. The first question, which we're approaching here, is something that Igor mentioned in his interview. And the question for me is, one, then where did this technology come from? Right. He said that he felt it was something that was, quote, given to them. Unquote. Given to the Germans, specifically yeah. given to the Nazi yeah. Germans. Yeah. By whom? Then that brings Who you to the question. <laughs> would, these guys look uh, like they know what they're doing. We're going to give this powerful technology to them. Yes, but in the great scheme of good and evil, you're definitely helping out the evil side, at least at that point, I would say. So. Well, okay, here's a dip into the tinfoil hat, even fringier. Get them out, area. folks. So start get, folding get your hats. The, some, a lot of people have been asking for this, and we don't <laughs> like to do it because then we get complaints uh, where we're going too far. That's that what direction. we do. But here's a nugget for you that like that. If you get real, way out there, then there are several races of aliens, and everybody knows this, who are really into uh, Robert Christopherson, one of our <laughs> ARC members, probably knows all about this, but you have several races of aliens out there. Some are good, some are neutral, and some are just plain bad. And the bad ones are the ones that were helping the Nazis. And the other theory is that, yeah, think about the time period. If this saucer crash in Freiburg, piloted by the Freiburg Shrieker. To be clear, I want to restate that Hanabu yes. 1 first appeared in 1939, and the crash that 
Forrest is about to talk about was just three years earlier in the Black Forest near Freiburg, yeah. also home of the Freiburg Shrieker from 1978. <laughs> right. That crash happened in Germany in 1936. Yes. Because, Although three yeah. years is a pretty quick turnaround for a reverse engineering, unless it well, didn't crash. Unless you got unless instructions. Unless it was a gift. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was a gift. It didn't crash, or it was pretty self-explanatory, and, and they found the driver's manual. Right. Know? It was just in the glove compartment. The owner's manual. Yes, yeah, so you flip through it, and it's readable. So, But you, you do wonder, then, where did they get this quick ramp-up of technology? Because remember, even with the discovery of splitting the uranium atom, that was all 1908 and past with the Curies and radium, and that was just getting going. Prior to that, nobody had any idea much about nuclear science. So it's a quick ramp-up time. So Ventry had posited that theory, not his. I don't want to tie him to that. But you got to wonder then, if this technology did exist, where do they get it? So that's one of the questions here we're, we're trying to answer, that it was reverse engineered from this strange craft in the Black Forest. Hanabu 1 was 25 meters or 82 feet in diameter. Yeah, large. Could theoretically travel 4,800 kilometers per hour or 3,000 miles per hour. It's just shy of Mach 4, by the way. However, it had a relatively low operational ceiling, meaning it couldn't go to a high altitude. Mm. Now, by the third generation, the Hanabu 3 was three times larger and supposed to obtain speeds two to seven times faster than the first one. And on top of that, even the Hanabu 1, I'm pretty sure, they could stay aloft for weeks. Oh. Whatever their system was, they could stay aloft for weeks. And they could carry a great deal of weight as well. Now, for me, this is very interesting stuff. And again, bringing it back to the bell and whether or not it was an anti-gravity device or somehow involved in this. There's a couple things, and I already said one. If this was connected to a UFO crash in 1936 in the Black Forest, three years is a pretty quick time to turn around, which is something that Igor also pointed out when yes. we were talking to him. Right. And he felt more like the information had been given to them. And when he said that, I felt like there was something he was not telling us that he had been heard. Me too. Yeah. Which so, then, of course, I intensely want to know, <laughs> what, <laughs> what is that information? Where do they get it? Yeah. yeah. And I am a particular fan of the SR-71 Blackbird, oh, the Lockheed too. plane. Yeah, which yeah. just pretty much anybody who's even remotely into military stuff, which I'm not specifically, but I mean, this plane was amazing. And I actually just watched a one-hour special on its development last week. Right. That's one of the things that's actually being developed or was developed at Area 51. It was developed at Area 51. And now you can see them at a lot of air and space museums, which is awesome. There's one on the Intrepid in New York City. And there's one right over there by USC here in Los Angeles at the California Science Center. It's yeah. mounted out near the parking deck, which is great. You park on the upper level, you can almost touch it. As well as a defunct space shuttle. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, great place if you're ever in Los Angeles. And if you want to see an SR-71 in New York City, go to the Intrepid. There's one on the deck there. I believe it's still on the deck. I haven't seen it since they remodeled. Right. But, um, but just imagine a plane that could fly so high and so fast. I believe their motto was unarmed, alone, and unafraid because no missile could catch it. That's right. In fact, there is a story of a missile that was shot at one and they were able to evade it by more or less just stepping on the gas a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and it, it was still a little hairy. They were scared. I saw an interview with the pilot yeah. who was at the controls when that happened and it was a two-person plane. And it was a reconnaissance plane that took photographs. And uh, at that particular case, the one that was fired on by the missile was flying over the DMZ in Korea, I believe. Yeah, yeah. The only area still left in the world that is technically at war. Yes. Just to stand off there, yeah. S super dangerous area. But my point about that aircraft is I understand what it had to go through technically to exist. Right. And only because I've watched some things on TV and read a lot of interviews with the 
pilots. And it's hard for me with the Hanabu 1, the technology has to go way beyond just the anti-propulsion device for it to be able to travel at those speeds. Because the problems that the SR-71 encountered was that the air friction would heat up the surface so much that the metal would expand. And therefore, when it was on the ground at normal, whatever you would call room temperature or outside temperature, yeah. the panels were loose and had gaps in them. And with the <laughs> SR-71, yeah. they wanted it to be light. It didn't even have a bladder for fuel. So when they filled it up with fuel and it was sitting on the ground, the gas dripped out of it, just dripped wow. on the ground everywhere. Yeah. And it was a special kind of fuel called JP-7, which was almost impossible to light the engineers would drop cigarettes and matches right into it, and they would just snuff out. <laughs> wow. So yeah. they developed a special fuel. They got the plane. They got the panels are open. The fuel is dripping out of it. And here's the question. It's having to do all this stuff. Do you really believe that the Hanabu craft, let's just say we're accepting that it had an anti-gravity propulsion system, how could it be capable of these speeds without having all those same problems that the SR-71 had which they found through proven practical test flights. Right. Here's my thinking. This is not just alien technology. You are now at the branches, the departing fork in the road between two types of technology. With the SR-71 and the Aurora Project and Scramjet. These are follow-ups to the SR-71 right. that supposedly don't exist. No, but you... you Even know, though people hear, have seen them. We in California, you've heard the double tap, a sonic boom going out over the ocean, which they believe is leaving from Edwards Air Force Base and returning. These thunderclaps, no plane visible, nothing. Yeah. They think that one might have been connected to the Aurora Project. And, and there's the, an SR-72 as well. Right, and we're talking about the Dreamland, Groom Lake, test bed connected to Area 51, that that's where they take off from. They're so fast, they can be out over the ocean in a minute and return. That is one branch of technology where you are using fuel, explosive or not. You are still combating the effects of friction in our atmosphere here and the problems and associated risks with flight. And when you want to get to the extremes, you know, that's one of the rumors that is what's actually at Hangar 18. You remember that one? Sure. Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, center of a lot of UFO lore. What's actually there is a diamond-coated kill vehicle, which they call it. And it's not to kill people so much. It's a vehicle that can travel Mach 5, Mach 6, take down an ICBM missile within like three or four minutes after launch or a minute after launch, knock it out of the sky, return back to base, have lunch. And the reason this, it's diamond-coated is that's a protection against the tremendous amount of friction generated by traveling those kinds of speeds. So that's theoretical, but we do know this, the SR-71 exists and, and what it can actually do, and we know that... And it's retired. It is retired. When, and, and, so, that's, yeah. and this is a very important point that I just... Sorry to interrupt yeah, you, but yeah. just... It's a very important point. People, a lot of times, when we talk about this kind of technology on the show... We hear from them, oh, it's impossible. I mean, the SR-71, that was 1960, I think, three or four. Yeah. Talk about impossible. If you had seen this thing, if you would have jumped the fence at Groom Lake, of course right. you would have been shot. But if you, let's say you had, <laughs> yeah, right. and you went in and you saw this thing sitting there that looks like a UFO, and you have to see it. If you haven't seen it, it's this long, beautiful, black yes, UFO-looking spaceship. Engine, yeah. yeah, It looks like Batman's plane. The well, Bat plane. Uh, Ben and, Rich, somewhere along the line, the idea for the shape of this was inspired by the shape of a UFO that was seen. Well, there you go. So the point is, if you had gone and witnessed all that in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, and then came out and told your friends, or you wrote a blog entry about it, you know, it's pre-internet, people would have been, what are you talking about? That's impossible. 
just think about the SR-71 is retired. It's been retired a long time. I don't even know how long, 10 years or more. There was a long lead-in and a long delay before it's being worked on. The idea is conceived. Engineers are working on it, and it's made known to the public, and right. then it's retired. So, so you're seeing old technology. Exactly. So what's out there now? Precisely. And, and that's something you always have to consider when you look back at what's happening here with the Hanabu craft, regardless of how it worked and what it did. Right. They were definitely working on things that were ahead of their time, because especially at war, you really ramp that stuff up. you got to get ahead. You got to get out there. Right. But you were saying two branches of physics. One has to deal with friction and that sort of thing. Exactly. And the other one? That's the bleeding edge of the envelope in fuel fire technology, which I as a sideline here. I see SpaceX and it's like, that is really cool. How quaint. We're still using fire to get into space. Yeah. And now we can land it upright like Buck Rogers could in the 50s. <laughs> Nothing to take away from that. It's no, extremely it's cool and amazing. And I'm just astounded and blown away by it. But that is the one side. The other side is what we just mentioned a few times before here, field propulsion. There is no fuel on the craft. That's another great thing about interstellar travel. If you want to get even in long distances, then you're talking wormholes to make a jump because, yeah, you can't be traveling for 200 million years. You could. You, well, you won't feel so good when you get there. No, even if you're sleeping, <laughs> you're going to, yeah, you're going to have to start working out. You'll be, you know, flabby. But you are in a craft that requires no liquid oxygen fuel, no solid fuel, you are using the energy of the void, the dark matter, somehow, the resulting energy for your propulsion. So that's when they see field propulsion, that's very simplified, and I'm probably wrong, but that's the idea, is that you're not using fuel that's on board the craft. And it's provable in small cases. As far as we know, there's no spacecraft, but that's an idea to use that. So Yeah, a mouse purportedly hovered across a lab in Massachusetts. <laughs> no, really? I'm, no, I'm kidding. I'm oh, kidding. you are kidding. Yeah. Oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> but that would be so cute, a little tiny yeah. UFO saucer. <laughs> but, but they, He's like, I'm yeah. out of here, through the window. He <laughs> <laughs> could leave and then, and then shoots a laser at you. Or at the cat. Yeah. Now, this goes also back to Area 51, and the lore of ufologists is that Bob Lazard, and a lot of people don't believe him, but he's a guy who claimed he worked there, and of course he doesn't show up. He's like, well, I didn't see him in the phone books. Like, no, it's top secret. So hard to debate. A lot of people do believe him, but he was claiming that there was an Element 115. Now, there's uh, maybe clickbait, but that Element 115 is this secret element that was discovered or reverse engineered or given to us or found at Roswell. Isn't that stories. also what they said? There were some rods of that at the Skinwalker? Yes, there was something. Wasn't something, that 115? Right, but I believe yeah. that that was spurious and not true. But the idea is an Element 115 or even now 116 or 117, these crazy far-out elements, either not on the periodic table or just added, what they do is that they are so exotic that once properly ignited or employed, they basically open up a pocket of space-time. So when you see a UFO and it's making a crazy right-hand turn, that's not something the SR, even the SR-71 can do. You are defying the laws of gravity and physics, but what you have done is that in this 100% conversion of energy with this craft, and that, again, that goes back to Bob Lazar, and that's how these spaceships are able to fly, you are now not dealing with tremendous amounts of friction and gravity, because if you were making a right-hand turn, you would smash yourself against the inside of the craft and die. <laughs> you right. would be a paste. Right. But that's how they are able to zigzag and do these crazy maneuvers is that they have now opened up a pocket. And so you're basically slingshotting yourself from one pocket to the next. So it doesn't have to worry about friction. So that is the other lesser known and unknowable to us public people here technology, but it's rooted in real science. Zero point, anti-gravity, electrostatic, whatever you want to, what do you want to say, technology exists in some form. 
the John Hutchinson effect of metal being displaced, disruption, field disruption, all these kind of things. It's fringe science, and I'm sure a lot of regular scientists would say it's pseudoscience, and they might have a point, but there are kernels of truth in a lot of this stuff. It just hasn't been fully developed, in my opinion. So that's how you get away from a lot of the problems that we see with conventional terrestrial flight and engines and fire and fuel. Hey, did you see that Squarespace Super Bowl spot? Oh, the one with John Malkovich? Yeah, I did, and it was pretty funny. There's an even funnier alt spot on YouTube that I don't think they could air since they had to bleep them a lot. It seems Mr. Malkovich is very, very angry that someone else snagged johnmalkovich.com before he did. You know what? That can and does happen a lot, and that's the point. Don't wait to make your next move. Get your own unique domain name before someone else does and make your own beautiful website with Squarespace. Of course, I did go and check and see if he actually got it, and he does. And it looks simple and clean, yet elegant and sophisticated. And you can have all that too with whatever your next move is, whether it's advertising your business, showcasing your creative project, or simply creating a website to share news and photos with family and friends. Squarespace's beautiful, award-winning templates will make you and your content look its best. Squarespace's 24-7 customer support is also award-winning, and their fully transparent, easy-to-set-up, all-in-one platform means there's nothing for you to install, patch, or upgrade, ever. They take care of the complicated stuff for you. Come visit us at our own new Squarespace website in a few days when it's finished. Make your next move now. Use the promo code LEGENDS at checkout for 10% off any website subscription or domain purchase at squarespace.com. That promo code again is L-E-G-E-N-D-S. Squarespace. Make your next move. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Ian Ulam. Now back to the show. Here's my thing about connecting the Hanabu to the bell. One is the bell seemed to have been primarily underground. And this is something I wanted to ask Igor about too. It was an underground device, but since somehow it was connected to the hinge theoretically and the fly trap, so maybe the craft they were testing was above ground, but the power from the bell theoretically provided power to the anti-gravitational. I mean, the thing is, if you're doing field propulsion, you don't need something to provide power. Uh, no, unless maybe to turn it over, get it started. Like a, yeah. You know, or, or, or like you see with <laughs> conventional rockets, there's always hookups, but that's, you know, liquid oxygen, there's different things, you know, and then they disconnect when the rocket is launched. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify, though, in case people aren't getting this, when we say the hinge, that concrete ring structure with the legs, there's kind of two different areas of thinking here, just very quickly. One is that it was a base of a cooling tower, not yeah. what you see now. On top of that was a giant contraption, which actually looks like, to me, Tesla's tower. Yes. The old New, the which, tower New Jersey. And this is, yeah. by the way, this is speculation. No one has a picture of that thing no. with anything above it. That's all they're going by is that the base looks very similar to existing structures of the time. Yeah. And that it's called the flytrap because it looks like an old timey flytrap. That's what we meant before, just to clarify in case you didn't understand that. And to clarify. And to clarify in case you did not uh, understand that. Yeah. So that's one idea is that it was cooling something that generated a tremendous amount of heat nearby. The second theory that Igor is ascribing to is that it was a test rig, which means it either suspended this craft or was somehow, think about it like Jodie Foster in Contact, in that you have this spinning device that they drop the craft into the center of, yeah. that creates some kind of field vortex, blah, 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 torsion field, whatever, that gets her to the other dimensional interstellar travel. So Igor's thinking that it actually had some physical connection to the craft itself. Either it was suspended, tethered, you know, something was spinning around it, whatever it was. That's the other method of thinking, because obviously 
it's the only thing left that we can look at. Right. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is in connecting the bell to the Hanabu, yeah. how does it relate? It's not on board. It's not something that you get inside of and go somewhere. And this is another reason why, for me, the bell and Kecksburg don't line up. Unless the Kecksburg situation is an unpiloted situation where this thing shot off like a bottle rocket from right. some <laughs> yeah. secret site. Yeah. And it took the path it took. Right. Because they lost control of it, and it was the equivalent of a meltdown or a complete loss of control, right. and then it crashed in Kecksburg, and they had to recover it, which is why the theory that Ventry mentioned coming up with, with the other gentleman, about the GE Mark II reentry vehicle, which looks kind of like an acorn, and yep. was a suborbital and also orbital launch vehicle that took spy photos by going over the poles and returning, seemed more plausible to me with regard to Kecksburg. And also, I just don't think the Bell was this type of craft based on what we've learned about it in cursory research. Right. But I wanted to talk about something that Dr. Farrell said. Can you remind our listeners who Dr. Farrell was? Yes, he is a an author and a researcher, Dr. Joseph P. Farrell, along with other authors like Jim Mars and Henry Stevens, who have written books about the Nazi bell and Nazi and occultism and Third Reich special weapons. Joseph Farrell's book that deals mostly with the bell is called The SS Brotherhood of the Bell, NASA's Nazis, JFK, and Magic 12. And he's got some other books we, we will list. He's done a lot of research on this, and he has some very different conclusions. He basically is going off of Igor's research, which is what everyone is kind of going off of Igor. He's the main guy. That's why we were so lucky to get him and glad to talk with him and that he was so forthcoming. But Farrell's done a fair amount of his own research, and like I said, he's, he's written uh, books called Reich of the Black Sun, which deals with the power source and the Third Reich and SS top inner circle brass dealing in occultism and world domination and all kinds of crazy ideas. And as we mentioned before, he is also interviewed by Jim Harold on his Paranormal Podcast, episode 91. It was released 30th of June, 2009. And you'll have to become a member of the Paranormal Plus Club to get that. I am, and I greatly enjoy it, but it's called Nazis and the Bell. All right, well, here's the interesting thing about Farrell and why I wanted you to reintroduce him to our listeners was he has said that the Bell and the craft at Kecksburg made a similar sound. He mentions in his interview, which he may elaborate more in his books, but in the interview, he said that it made a similar sound, which I couldn't find any kind of kernel where that was suggested, but yeah, that's there's an been interesting no, thing to say. No indication of the sounds that either one made and anything that we've come across, but I will reiterate, People, and I yeah. said this earlier, we're still waiting on a copy of Igor's book, which may discuss the sound that it's supposedly made in Germany anyway. Right. But I didn't see any eyewitness accounts well, that stated what the Kecksburg craft sounded like either. People did see it come down. They heard the crash. You know, yeah, this was, I don't remember anybody like good old Woodrow Durenberger saying, uh, well, it, it sounded like an old clunking uh, sewing machine, like or fluttering fan. There was no description of that that I know of, but it came down. It did make a crash. People were aware of it. They were tracking it. The Kecksburg vehicle looked like it was under intelligent control, as they say. And John right. Ventry says that's because it has control jets on it. They have to steer this thing a little. So that's what people were saying, that even some descriptions that it kind of stopped a little or looked like it stopped, depending on your angle of view, and made different turns. So they're kind of roughly piloting this thing down so it doesn't hit the town or, or land on someone's house. It's kind of going into the woods where they can retrieve it. Farrell's conclusion that it may have something to do with bell technology, that this wasn't actually a flying bell, but a craft based on this technology that was now being experimented on by the Americans because it was captured technology after and the And this war. was, uh, yes, and this was many years later, so in right. theory it would be 
it would have developed. It would have been more exactly. manageable. Right. And, so now you've and done function. <laughs> right. You have a different design. And he's basing it also on the description of it, the size, the shape, the dimensions are roughly the same. The reentry vehicle, again, is not something that's got Recaro chairs in it that you can sit around and pilot. This thing is just, it's a machine that takes photographs from a high altitude. Who knows what the bells got inside of it other than counter-rotating cylinders and very deadly fluids, but it's also not a drivable craft. But it may be the engine right. for other craft that is drivable. Right. Maybe it's what makes the Hanabu fly. Well, However, this right. is the thing about the Hanabu. The, yeah. the last thing I want to say about that, sure. we're going to wrap that up, is I'm pretty sure the Hanabu was airborne with multiple generations while the bell was still in what we would describe as an experimental stage. Yes. Right. So, right. so it doesn't seem like it was ready to be deployed into a craft, which begs the next question. How is, if the Bell's an anti-gravity device, yeah. what was making the Hanabu fly? If you believe in both of them, then obviously you're talking about two potential anti-gravity systems, right. which seems far-fetched. Well, it, Not no. that the whole, this whole episode <laughs> hey, seems look, far-fetched, but you, I mean... You got, the, you got the piston engine, you got the rotary engine, you, yeah. got the, you got the diesel engine. So in that vein of thinking... You may have similar related technologies in a very in a much bigger scale, but veer off from each other in actual technological working. So I, we're all speculating here. Nobody knows about this. There's no plans or schematics, but they may have been two separate things with some ideas being shared between them. What Farrell says is that there is something similar about it at the time that the bell was being evacuated. Again, they just didn't fly this thing to South America or Antarctica in their newly claimed territory called New Swabia, which is actually a real thing. They sent an expedition there in 1938, and they were planning to do more. So that fuels a lot of other theories, including the Spear of Destiny, which is also, along with The Morning of the Magicians, one of the two books titled that deal with Nazis and occultism and Nazis and UFOs. It's crazy. We had to curb ourselves. But again, there are based some actual things. World War II, Allied pilots did see Foo Fighters. There's actually a few pictures, if you want to believe that, that show some glowing orbs harassing our Allied aircraft, which I think was trying to disrupt them electromagnetically, almost like an EMP weapon, electromagnetic yeah. pulse weapon, to screw them up, screw up the engine. Yeah. The other thing, the Third Reich was conducting research into advanced propulsion technology, like rocketry, and Werner von Braun, and Victor Schoenberger's engine research, and the flying wing craft, and uh, Arthur Sack and the AS-6 experimental circular winged aircraft. So this craziness is actually based on real some real items here. But of course, with fiction and, and movies and books and uh, people trying to make it sensationalized, you do go off into different directions. All right, so before we wrap this show up and get to our final conclusions on the Nazi bell, I did touch a few minutes ago on the Vril Society. Yes, this is under uh, Section A or Part, one of the two main questions, where did this thing come from? Yeah. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Vril Society? Well, the, this yeah. just comes back to the Black Sun that we right. were talking about earlier. There's bigger discussions and there's bigger conspiracy theories out there. And the basic story is, and it's spelled V-R-I-L, the name first appears in a novel written in 1871 by Edward Bulwer-Lytton called The Coming Race, or Vril, comma, The Power of the Coming Race. It was titled later or reprinted later, more towards the end of his death. But do you know that, who that guy is? You actually did know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, well, only because question. I read it the other day. I see. I did I not see. know prior to that. Are you folks out there familiar with the phrase, it was a dark and stormy night? Well, that's the guy who came up with that. And some other great gems, like the pen is mightier than the sword, 
the phrase, the unwashed masses. So he was actually very popular at his time. And he, some novels uh, he wrote under a pen name, Nom de Plume. But he made a lot of money because they were very popular novels at the time, a little bit gossipy, some of them. But this is a fictional story about a- Science fiction, uh, sci specifically. Yes, yeah. yeah, so good science fiction. So if you're into that, check it out, regardless of the weirdo undertones. But it's a, it's a story about a race of very tall, good-looking- <laughs> I think we, everyone should People. be warned that there are concepts within it that are popular with neo-Nazis, and we are not purporting to... Uh, no, right. Like a lot of things, it has been appropriated by groups that, you know, the originators have no control over, or the people following that, or nor are we glorifying it any way. It's just some of the tones line up with their philosophy, yeah. shall we say. So they've appropriated it. But the basic story is that there is an underground population of these tall, good-looking beings that are telepathic, very smart, have advanced technology. And one of the protagonists of the stories goes underground by accident, uh, I think through a crack in the ground somehow or a fissure, ends up in this uh, society there, interacts with them. But the power that they use are, is called the Vril, and they are able to master it. And it can be used for great healing purposes. It's a liquid. It's some kind of liquid. Yeah, there's the, well, they masters. It's funny you see all these connect. I start thinking about like Zerum. Right. <laughs> well, Zerum, but also yeah. the abyss. And the other thing about the plot about somebody going underground is it has a, a lot of parallels to Metropolis, which was made in 1927 in Germany. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the first it was German expressionism, the first real German expressionist science fiction film. Yeah, and one of my favorite movies when I was in film school, I loved it and. The main character, uh, Frieder, I believe, yeah. goes underground where they're mechanically managing the society for the people above ground. Absolutely. No, yeah. there, there is so much. But uh, that's a dual yeah. society thing. And this, this is a superior society that lives underground and supposedly fled due to flooding or something like that. But they have this <laughs> utopian society yeah. underneath the earth. No, and no they're going to come back. What does that sound like? <laughs> that's the Matrix. Yeah. There are so many books and movies tied in with this very general idea. Even Nazis and occultism is in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's the nut of that story. It's such a prevalent idea. If you want to trace it back, even to the times of Enoch and uh, the Enochian underground uh, chambers where secret knowledge is hidden, what do we have to deal with here as human beings on Earth? We've got the heavens, we've got the sky, and we've got the ground below us. So if it's not in the sky and we're not holding it, the magic is underground. Right. Like the Etruscans, they're autochthonous, autochthony, things that... Uh, Born you know, from the Earth. Yes, literally coming out of the ground. So it's not a new idea, but the real idea, and coming from Edward Bulwer-Lytton, here's a fun, fantastical kind of idea about uh, strange mystical beings that are very sexy and, and cool and fun to interact with. But their idea, though, is that at some point they're going to come back and take over the Earth by hook or by crook or by force. By the way, the women are very empowered. And this was 1871. Oh, yeah, sure. that's, a, this, that's a progressive idea. Yeah, no, yeah. There, there's equality there. there yeah. Well, it's more than equality. It's superiority on the uh, women's side because yeah. the women pursue the romantic relationships. Right. <laughs> they marry the men. They rarely stay married more than three years. And at the end of the three years, they leave them in... Well, uh, you have a choice. And don't remarry, I believe, right? Yeah, you have a choice. You can either stay married or move on with no harm, no foul. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a progressive idea for the late 1870s. There are a few theosophists and occultists like Helena Blavatsky, William Scott Elliott, and Rudolf Steiner, the two of those we mentioned in the Count series. Several times. Yeah, as taking this crazy idea about the Vril, the power of the Vril energy and the Black Sun, 
and saying that, well, I mean, it's a fun book, but there are some kernels of truth in there is according to occultism. And now this is Blavatsky who claimed that she knew the Count of St. Germain as an ascended master. Right. So... Who knows? But it's, again... Everything is connected. (laughs) Well, the general idea about this time is that in the age of a revival of occultism and mysticism, leading probably into the 1920s and 30s. So it's starting here, yes, in the the 1870s, there's more of an influence and a concentration on the beginnings of science fiction and Frankenstein and Dracula and all these crazy ideas, people are, are finding this exciting. And in Germany, you have the resurgence, Ariosophy and Arminism, which is it's part of the Volkisch Bewegung. Look, it's human nature for each generation to be nostalgic about the good old days. And in this time, in uh, the late 1800s, in Germany, there is a popularization for folk, all things folk and old Germanic pagan rituals and customs and the idea, the purity of the German town and the folklore. By the way, folks, if you haven't heard our Krampus episode, which we did oh, a year right. before yeah, right. Krampus became the hot item. Yeah, when it was hot. Yeah. yeah, it was cool before it was cool. Our Christmas episode from our first year of our show, I believe. I believe. We needed a Christmas topic that first year. Yeah, there's that, a little bit came of, up. you want to learn about paganism in, in Germany. That's a that's a good show to hear about it. But go ahead for us. I'm sorry. Oh, I well, no, I was going to say, so, so much has been made about this connection between, you know, Himmler and Hitler being really into occultism. And there are some people who've written some definitive books, Nicholas Goodrich Clark, The Occult Roots of Nazism. It's kind of the attitude I take is that there are some definite connections to Nazi philosophy and occultism and these ideas of superior races, of course, and this Volkisch Bewegung sparking these ideas and talk about nuclear reactor of, of folk ideas, it's all happening at a time where you have the turn of the century. So then you have World War I, you have this developing sense of German nationalism and identity, all getting into a groundswell that turns out not so great. Well, yeah, and it's funny you should say that. I do want to mention this one section on the Wikipedia page about the Real Society. Yes. About Willie Ley, who was a German rocket engineer who had immigrated to the U.S. in 1937. In 1947, he published an article titled, quote, Pseudoscience and Naziland, end quote, in the magazine Astounding Science Fiction. He wrote that the high popularity of irrational convictions in Germany at that time explained how national socialism could have fallen on such fertile ground. Among various pseudoscientific groups, he mentions one that looked for the Vril. Quote, the next group was literally founded upon a novel. That group, which I think called itself Warheitsgesellschaft, Society for Truth, and which was more or less localized in Berlin, devoted its spare time to looking for Vril. Uh, Willie Ley, by the way, is pictured on the Wikipedia page, standing with mid-level scientist Werner von Braun. (laughs) Really? (laughs) In 1954. Well, he is a scientist himself. No, yes, he is. He's a rocket engineer. So you're right. I love the way you just framed the cultural background. And that's an important thing to always do. One of the things that I remember from my all but useless degree in mass communications. (laughs) It's it's coming in handy here. My Bachelor of Arts, yeah. Yeah. But I do remember learning in MassCom 101 about, I had this teacher who really impressed upon us, whenever you look at older films or older movies or you're reading older books or even you're studying history, you have to always consider the filters that everything is coming through. Absolutely. And what were the filters of the time? what was the lens that people were looking through? Because you can't go back and and judge it by 
what you would think. Now, I mean, obviously, there's some things that are right or wrong. Obviously, the Holocaust is wrong. I don't care when it happened. But in terms of what Willie Lay is saying here about it being a fertile ground, because the general belief systems overall in the country were a little bit haphazard at that time, culturally, for whatever reason, which isn't necessarily in itself an evil idea, but it did allow the seeds for all of this other stuff to take root. Well, yeah, you, you have the seeds, and then you have a catalyst, like World War I and Germany losing, and they were humiliated yeah. by their, their treaty. That's where it took a, a wheelbarrow of Marx to buy a loaf of bread. These people, like, we're good people. We have great traditions with this Volkisch Bewegung. I, I love just saying that. So, <laughs> but that's, that's where you get ideas like Arminism and Ariosophy, and it only takes a couple of uh, people, like Guido von Liszt and Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels, in Austria between the time period of 1890 to 1930 to publish some ideas, get people excited, especially people that have some influence in the local political scene in Munich to get them fired up. And once you get people fired up and they're feeling downtrodden, they get behind something. Yeah. And it's not, Tell sometimes it. it's, uh, <laughs> it, you know, sometimes it's national pride, which, okay. And then other times that takes a nasty turn, which it did here. Yeah. But there's some other kind of interesting ideas though that are directly connected to the bell and the theories of, again, back to where it came from, is that there's some evidence left behind that there was, you could call it an SS General's inner circle retreat or club at the Wulsberg Castle during this Nazi era. And what you get to fuel these stories and theories is that there's little bits of evidence that remain. And one being the symbol of the Black Sun, which is a floor mosaic at the Wulsberg Castle, which was built in 1603, but was adopted as an SS general's retreat. And if you buy into the origins of the bell and the and the, the fringe theories, the crashed UFO in Freiburg in 1936 in the Black Forest, that device craft was taken to Wulsberg Castle to be reverse engineered by the SS General's Club and I'm sure some high-level scientists. Who had the black sun symbol. Who had the black the mosaic yes. on the floor. Exactly. So... Which that, you can see online, that picture. No, and it's a, re, it's a really there. It's a real yeah. thing. And there's a whole real tie-in with Germanic runes. It's a runic symbol. Some women in the Frankish king's era had brooches that had the symbol. It's a very old symbol. It's not just made up. Do you think that all of this is just this, this melting pot of these ideas? Absolutely. These, yeah. yeah. All <laughs> no, this, this paganism mixed up with well, the downtrodden time. And it's just crazy. And then all of this comes around to the bell and, what, yeah. and technology gets intertwined. It's just but there's a real thread. That's the crazy thing is I straddle this line between fringe and way out there and wait a second, that actually happened. That was a real thing. So yes, but to the degree of the importance or the actuality of things and being applicable to the story we're talking about here, yes, there was a black sun design that was in the floor of this castle where SS generals did hang out were reportedly 12 of them marking the 12 months did strange rituals trying to summon this crazy, you know, black energy virile power. And there was a, a Thule society that they think was existed. But again, you'll see some historians saying like, well, there's this actually no proof. Not the company that makes the roof rack. No, Although but it's it tied spelled in. the same way. In Greek mythology, it was a mythical northern country or territory. That's where they got that. And that's why people adopted that. Again, it's the glorification of like, we were once a great nation back in the you know ancient Greek era. They spoke about us and we were the subject of myth and legend. 
that's what's getting people fired up. So you have the Vril Society, you have the Tullius Society, which is possibly connected to the Nazis. So you have to look at what the historian Nicholas Goodrich Clark is kind of saying. It's like, well, yeah, a lot of it's uh, inflated and, and fabricated to sell books. However, there are some actual tie-ins. There are some actual connections to real things. So look, we can only take you so far. The rest is your own judgment and rationality. Okay, so that pretty much wraps up the Nazi bell. I think we need to hit our conclusions here. Forrest, is there anything that you want to say before we sign off for tonight? Yeah, just on the idea of it being a technological device with three potentials, that of an energy source or a weapon, not even discounting auto certainty and the time machine idea. Yeah, <laughs> Which yeah. We, we didn't get too much into, but it's, again, very speculative. The idea that it's a propulsion device that I'm kind of leaning towards propulsion device experimentation, but I think whatever it was, and it had nuclear capabilities to it, or elements of it could be adapted for nuclear energy or nuclear weaponry. But I believe that its greatest potential was something to do with anti-gravity field propulsion that may or may not rip, be ripping the time-space continuum. I know that's pretty way out there, but I don't think that it was tied in so much with nuclear fuel enrichment. It sounds like they were looking towards propulsion for a craft, and it did all these other wacky, deadly things, and they were like, whoa, we, we don't even know what we have here. There have been several things or ideas that have come along in the course of human history that have changed the world, and it's, you know, things like what we just talked about, uranium, which is a rock whose power can light the world or it can destroy it, and its potential was discovered right before World War II, and it has changed how we do everything. So, it makes total sense to me that another technology was being researched and developed by a group that had already demonstrated that they were the leading scientific force at the time. They had the brain power, the raw materials for the bell, and most importantly, the will to experiment with the unimaginable. So if the bell did exist as reported and could do the things that it could do, then for me, I just have three questions. Who has it now? What's being done with it? And how will it change everything? Well, I don't suppose I have to remind you that Igor Vitkowski first revealed on our show before anywhere else that the bell was in fact taken to South America after the war. And all this time, according to him, it has been an ongoing independent project that has continued to be refined and without any political agenda. He indicated that the current custodians of it actually reached out to him to tell him that its intended use will greatly benefit all of mankind. He told us, and this sounds like a line from a movie, but that its true purpose, possibly related to interstellar travel, will soon be revealed. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. We're dark next week since Scott will be in the Big Apple for a few days, but we'll be back the week after that with a new show. We'd like to thank Harrys.com, The Great Courses Plus, and Squarespace for sponsoring the show. Please remember that supporting our sponsors supports Astonishing Legends. Special thanks to John Boland. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm Jose Garcia Chow. I'm Ian Ulam. I'm Heather Williams, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide perpetuity. All right, um, thanks. 
Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. (laughs) 